Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, that's the text for this morning, and we're going to deal with it rather loosely to begin with. The title of the message this morning is Broken Relationships and the Radical Grace of Forgiveness. Broken Relationships and the Radical Grace of Forgiveness. I know something about you. I know something about every one of you, and the same is true of me. And what it is that I know about you is that each of you, without exception, has broken relationships. That's part of living in a Genesis 3 fallen world. Not all of our relationships are currently broken, but we all have broken relationships where sin, sin has, has dug its wedge into our relationship. And it's caused a relationship of unity to be a relationship of disunity. That's what a wedge does, by the way. Think about an axe for a moment. An axe is basically a sharpened wedge. What's the purpose of an axe? Well, it takes one object and it splits it into two. And that's what sin does to our relationships. It breaks our relationships. And as a result of those broken relationships, which every one of us have, there is subsequently the need for radical forgiveness. The story is told of two monks who were walking through the countryside one day on their way to another village to help bring in the crops. And as they walked, they noticed an old woman sitting at the edge of a river. She was terribly upset because there was no bridge and she couldn't cross the river on her own. The first monk kindly offered, Ma'am, we'll carry you across if you like. Thank you, thank you, she said gratefully, accepting their help. So the two men joined hands and they lifted her between them and carried her across the river. When they got to the other side, they set her down and she went on her way. But after they had walked, that is, the two monks walked another mile or so, the second monk began to complain. Look at my clothes, he said. They're filthy from carrying that woman across the river. And my back still hurts from lifting her. I could feel it getting stiffer by the moment. The first monk just smiled and nodded his head. A few more miles up the road, the second monk griped again. My back is hurting me so badly, and it's all because I had to carry that silly woman across the river. I can't go any farther because of the pain. The first monk now looked at his partner, who was now lying on the ground moaning, and asked, Have you ever wondered why I'm not complaining? Your back hurts because you're still carrying the woman. I dropped her off five miles ago. You see, that's the picture of many of us, friends, when it comes to the conflict that is in our relationships. We're the second monk who can't let issues go. And we carry them and carry them and carry them. We hold on to the pain of those who have hurt us in some way. Furthermore, we hold on uh, to, to their past and their offenses. We, we, we hold it over their, their head. And we sometimes remind them of the burden which we still carry because of something they did to us, something they said to us, the way that they acted to us, and some way that they sinned against us in the past. And so we, we hold it over their head. We remind them of it. This is an all-too-familiar picture of many of our relationships, yet Jesus tells his disciples in the disciples' prayer that we're to be actively praying for a forgiving spirit. Father, forgive us our debts, and then there's the implicit request to give me a forgiving spirit as we forgive our debtors. That we would forgive the debts of others against us, just as God in Christ has forgiven the incalculable debt of sin that every believer has committed against him, is nothing short of a miracle. But it's a miracle by God's grace that is possible. Forgiveness is a miracle 
but it's a possible miracle in each and every one of our lives and relationships. With that being said, let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I'm going to read uh, our text in its entirety, verses 9 through 15. I want to encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Again, our study this morning will confine us strictly to verse 12. Matthew, recording Jesus' teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God abides forever. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you in advance. I'll be heavy on point one and point two, very brief on point three. Point number one is this. As long as sin remains, there will be brokenness in our relationships. As long as sin remains in this world, there will be, take it to the bank, brokenness in our relationships. Point number two. As long as brokenness in our relationships remain, there will be a need for the radical grace of forgiveness. You see the pattern here? As long as brokenness in our relationships remain, there will be a need for the radical grace of forgiveness. And then third and lastly, we'll be brief here this morning, when the radical grace of forgiveness is practiced, our relationships will reflect the gospel as they were intended to. Point number one, as long as sin remains, there will be brokenness in our relationships taking this point from the first phrase of verse 12. Jesus says, forgive us, or he instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts. Implicit in that is the reality that we are indeed debtors. We're sinners. We sinned against God, and we sin against each other in our relationships. We sin vertically against God. We sin horizontally against others. At the end of the day, though, all sin is vertical, right? We sin against each other, But at the end of the day, all sin is vertical. David sinned against Bathsheba, committed adultery. And then in Psalm 51, he says, Against you, O Lord, and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Was he negating his sin against Bathsheba? He was not. He was acknowledging that all sin, first and foremost, is vertical and then horizontal. I want to say something this morning about the root cause of all of our broken relationships. The root cause of our broken relationships. And that root cause is our heart. The root cause of all of our broken relationships resides right within our sinful hearts. You see, in order to grow in being a peacemaker, which Jesus highlighted back in the Beatitudes, if you can remember, as a defining characteristic of every true believer, we need to understand what lurks behind our broken relationships. There's something behind it. If we peel back the veneer of the brokenness in our relationships, we'll find that there's something lurking back there behind that brokenness. And when we learn what it is, we'll understand why we react the way that we do when we're sinned against. I, I, I would venture to say that we, would, that we would respond far better if we would respond when we're sinned against instead of reacting 
when we're sinned against. To respond is intentional and it's thoughtful. It's biblical. It's understanding this is what God has said about how I should speak in, in response, how I should act in response. To react is fire-ready aim. Fire-ready aim. Okay? We don't want to react when we're sinned against. We want to respond, and we want to respond properly. You see, when we're faced with a conflict, we have the strong tendency to focus so passionately on how someone else has wronged us and what they should do to make things right. Is that right? When we're sinned against, we, we have this bent, this drive, this determination, so to speak, to focus passionately on how that person has wronged me and what they should do to make things right. But in the midst of our broken relationships, God's word always calls us to focus primarily not on what is going on outside of us, but instead to focus on what is going on inside of us. A critical distinction there. God wants us to focus on what's going on within, what's going on in our heart that is causing me to react the way that I'm reacting instead of responding the way that God's word calls me to respond. You see, the root cause of all of our conflict lies right within our sinful hearts. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. He said, For out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false testimony and slander. Where does it all come from? It comes from this swirling cauldron of sin that resides in our heart. Okay? Had a couple in my office this week, and I was illustrating this with them. Think about a clear glass for just a moment. Okay? And you crack open a crisp, fresh can of Sprite. And you pour it in that clear glass. What forms along the inside of the glass? Bubbles. Bubbles do. And if you agitate the glass in any way, what happens to the bubbles? They all come to the surface, right? Just another way of illustrating Luke 6.45. Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus says the exact same thing in Luke 6.45, and he says in Matthew chapter 15, that's that evil comes out of the heart. It comes from within, not from without. But we are oftentimes bent on trying to pin issues to external circumstances instead of looking first to our own sinful hearts as the cause for brokenness in our relationships. Turn your Bibles for just a moment to James chapter 4. I want to show you something. James chapter 4, the first three verses. James here vividly explains the heart's central role in our broken relationships. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, this is what he writes. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you do not ask, or I'm sorry, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James asked the question here, what is it that causes broken peace among you? What is it that causes broken relationships? What is it that causes your tiffs and your spats and your squabbles and your disagreements and your feuds and your disputes and your falling outs and your altercations and your arguments? What's behind that? 
James asks. And then he answers his own question with profound wisdom when he says this, Is it not this, or here's the answer, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel, James says. You see, James tells us that the cause of all of our conflict is warring passions and desires. I've talked about this numerous times from the pulpit, but the bottom line, friends, is this. You, yes, you, not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your children sitting next to you, not the person with whom you're thinking about the fact that I have a broken relationship with them, you, you have dreams and wants and desires. And the problem isn't so much oftentimes with our dreams, wants, and desires. They, they can be sinful and wrong inherently, but they can, they can also be pure inherently, but they can become sinful when our wants, dreams, and desires are wanted too much and desired for too much. We call that selfishness. That's too much of a good thing becomes a sinful thing. But you, you have wants, dreams, and desires. Now, here's the reality. Everyone else has wants, dreams, and desires. Conflicts in relationship are the result of your wants, dreams, and desires coming into colliding, careening impact with someone else's wants, dreams, and desires that are different. There is no conflict. There's relative harmony when your wants, dreams, and desires align with the wants, dreams, and desires of someone else. But the moment there is discontinuity or disunity between your wants, dreams, and desires and someone else's wants, dreams, and desires, you are now faced with a decision. Am I going to put the interest of others before myself and serve someone else? Or am I going to put the gloves on, so to speak, tighten them up and get in the ring and go to battle for my wants, dreams, and desires. Therein lies the root of all relational conflict. Oftentimes we want to point and say, well, if that person hadn't, then I wouldn't have. Or if you hadn't said that, then I wouldn't have responded in this way. Or, or if, if you hadn't, fill in the blank, then, then I wouldn't have. And so we try to pin blame on the other party. James tells us we can't do that. He encourages us to look for the cause of conflict as being inward instead of outward. James encourages us to turn our attention to our hearts, and he points us specifically to our desires, our warring passions. Paul Tripp says this. He says, beneath all of our relational conflict, there is an even more fundamental war that rages. That's the war of desires in our hearts. See, notice that James didn't say evil desires. Look at your Bible there. Is it not this, that your desires war within you? James didn't say your evil desires. He just said desires. You see, to desire is one of the ways in which we are made in God's image. God is a God of purpose and desire, design. James's focus in the text is not necessarily evil desires, but rather inordinate desires. Not necessarily what I want, but I want it too much. So let me give you an example here. Could be a desire for comfort. And someone else does not share your desire for comfort. Conflict is the result. Your desire may be the desire for peace. And someone else comes in like a bull in a china shop. That comes colliding into your dreams and desires and wants. 
Maybe it's peace and quiet, and your children aren't giving you that. And so we have conflict. Maybe it's status, or the other people would recognize you. And when someone fails to recognize what you've done, or fails to recognize your accomplishment, or fails, let's bring it to the church here, fails to, to recognize how you served in some way, we get all bent out of shape because we desired something that wasn't met in another person. And again, we're so tempted to point a finger and say, why didn't you recognize? Why didn't you see it? Why? Can, you not, can you not see I've spent countless hours here? It's not necessarily what you want, but it's how much you want what you want that oftentimes makes the difference between a desire and an evil desire. You see, whatever rules your heart, whatever desires, whatever wants, whatever dreams rule that you want and, and rule your heart, they will, as a result, rule your behavior. Whatever rules your heart, whatever wants, dreams, and desires you have that rule your heart will, in turn, rule your behavior. I mean, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 6, 21. We'll, we'll be there at length uh, here in just a couple of weeks. But Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's just another way of saying you do what you do because you what? Because you think what you think, right? Let me tweak it just a little bit for the application here. You do what you do because you want what you want, okay? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You do what you do, you you react how you react when your wants, dreams, and desires are not catered to because... Your heart is bent on the wrong thing. Your treasure is wrong. And so you do what you do because you want what you want. You see, either our selfish desires will control our hearts or desire to please Christ will rule our hearts. Okay? The rubber meets the road as soon as someone does not meet your wants, dreams, and desires. Then you will see, like the bubbles on the inside of the glass, you will see whether it's selfishness that's coming to surface or whether what's coming out of us in a, in a response or a reaction is to please and honor Christ. Let me illustrate this for you for just a second. If, if, you're, if you're an artist and I'm not, and you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to do so, uh, draw two hearts uh, on your outline there. And in one heart, write this, please Christ. And in the second heart, write, please me. One heart, please Christ. In the second heart, please me. Here's the point that I want to make here. If your heart is to please God, you will respond when you are sinned against in a way that is Christ-honoring. Your motivations, your attitudes, your actions, your speech will be Christ-like. What's the result? We'll see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If your heart is bent towards pleasing Christ, when others sin against you, the fruit of the Spirit is what will come out. And it will come out in a response, an obedient response. Now, if please me is what's currently ruling your heart, If that's the treasure of your heart, my wants, my dreams, my desires, if that's what's sitting on the throne, so to speak, and we all have a throne on our heart, if that's what's sitting on the throne of your heart, then we'll see wrong motivations, we'll see wrong actions, we'll see wrong attitudes, we'll see wrong speech as a reaction 
to being sinned against. And that reaction will, will show itself in anger. It'll show itself in frustration. It'll show itself in enmity or fear or anxiety. Sinful responses. That makes sense? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever's sitting on the throne of your heart, if it's a desire to please Christ, you'll respond when you're sinned against in a Christ-like way. If your wants, dreams, and desires are sitting on the throne of your heart when you're sinned against, sin will be the reaction as a result. Let me say something about the connection between your significance. Where you, where you tire, where, where you tether your significance and how you respond when you're sinned against. You see, in order for us to respond Christ-like, uh, in a Christ-like manner, when we're wronged or when we're sinned against, our significance has got to be rooted in Christ. You see, when others offend us in some way, and we either implode, we crumble, or we explode in anger, it exposes misplaced significance. When someone sins against you, and you either implode, you clam up like the sky is falling chicken little. Or you explode like the shaken bottle of Coca-Cola. In anger, what it exposes is misplaced significance. You've attached, you've tethered, you've tied, you've anchored your significance to something other than who Jesus Christ says about you. And as a result, you react instead of respond. You see, our significance needs to be rooted in our position in Christ, who you are in Christ. Think this, friends, you're adopted if you know Christ. You're redeemed, justified, a child of God, ransomed, loved, reconciled, a citizen of heaven, an heir with Christ, elect, chosen by God, a new creation, forgiven, the bride of Christ, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And we could go on and on and on. That's who you are. That's your position in Christ if you know Jesus savingly. If you get that right, it keeps you from getting all bent out of shape when someone sins against you. You see, the reason that we get all turned upside down when someone sins against us is because we think in the moment that our position is this, victim, entitled to, imposed upon, rights were infringed, I'm exposed You've inconvenienced me in some way. You've ridiculed me in some way. Or you've marginalized me in some way. When my significance is attached to those things, I will react instead of responding in a Christ-like way. Your significance has got to be rooted in Christ, your position in Christ, if you are going to respond in a Christ-like way when you're sinned against. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. It's not if you'll be sinned against, it's when. It's not if, it's when. I mean, even as believers, we sin against each other. We do it daily. We've been given a new nature and a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit, but we still live in this old earth suit. We still live in this old flesh that that wars with our spirit. That's Romans 7, right? Why, why do I do the things I don't want to do? The things that I do are, are the things that I, you know, that, that I hate. Who will save me from this body of death, this earth suit, Paul says? Well, there's coming a day when we will be saved from this earth suit, right? At conversion, God saved us from the penalty of sin. Jesus said on the cross, John chapter 19, it's finished, Right? We've been saved from the penalty of sin already in Christ. 
We've been saved from the power of sin in Christ. Sin no longer is your master. Sin no longer has dominion over you. But the final P, which we have not yet been saved, is the presence of sin. And that comes when Jesus Christ steps back into this world, sets up his rule and reign. We get glorified bodies at the resurrection of the dead, and we are saved to sin no more. In in a final and in an eternal sense, saved to sin no more. But until then, we live in this sinful earth suit. So it's not if we will sin against each other. It's when we will sin against each other. Point number two in your outline is this. As long as brokenness in our relationships remain, which they will this side of eternity, then there will be a need for the radical grace of forgiveness. The radical grace of forgiveness. I would attach this point to the second phrase of Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, if you're back there in Matthew. Jesus instructs us, as we have also forgiven our debtors. It is implied that we have forgiven our debtors. And you notice the past tense there, by the way, as we have forgiven our debtors. It's to be an immediate response. What is forgiveness, you ask? What is forgiveness? If I asked you to take your pen there and to write a brief, maybe even one-sentence definition of forgiveness, what would you write? What would you write? How you define forgiveness is very, very important. If we're to practice it, as we've been biblically instructed to, we have to know what biblical forgiveness looks like and what biblical forgiveness means. What is forgiveness? Let me give you a one sentence here. Forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Forgiveness is giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. It means that when I'm sinned against, I'm to absorb the blow of the sin and to refuse to return fire. Okay, It's giving up my right to hurt you for hurting me. Let me say a few words here about what forgiveness isn't. There's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of confusion, even even amongst believers as to what forgiveness is, what biblical forgiveness is, and what it isn't. Let me state a few thoughts here about what forgiveness isn't. First of all, forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It has nothing to do with our feelings. If we're waiting to feel something before we extend forgiveness, we will hardly ever forgive anyone. Feelings aren't a prerequisite for forgiveness. You, you'll, you, you will never find a street address, that's chapter and verse in your Bible, where Jesus or any other biblical author tells us that, that feelings are a prerequisite for forgiveness. No, we're told to forgive a definitive action and to let our feelings catch up with our decision. See, feelings are finicky. They're fleeting. They're they're like that roller coaster. We have high highs and low lows. Sometimes I might feel like forgiving you. Sometimes when you sin against me again, I might not feel like forgiving you and holding the past offense above your head. I have to remember there that 1 Corinthians 13, Paul tells us that love keeps no what? No record of wrongs. No laundry list, friends. Okay? Oftentimes when we're hurt, you know what we do? We get historical. Okay? 
Sometimes we get hysterical, and we, we get all wound up tighter than an eight-day clock, and we, and we get upset, we get our feelings heard, and we get our toes stepped on, but oftentimes when we're sinned against, we get historical. Here's what I mean by that, is I'm going to parade in front of you all of your past offenses, and I'm going to let you know just the weight and the magnitude and the gravity of your offense against me. Friends, don't get historical. This is especially a tendency we have in our marriages. Okay? Husbands, don't get historical with your wives. Wives, don't get historical with your husbands. Love keeps no record of wrongs. To forgive, and I'll state this again later, means that I will no longer parade your offense in front of you or hold it over your head. But forgiveness isn't a feeling. I mean, how would we know what we have to feel in order to extend forgiveness? What does the needle on the forgiveness gauge have to read before we're ready to forgive? You see how subjective it is? This is oftentimes the way that we operate. I I, I would submit to you this. When when we think that, that forgiveness is equal to feelings or feelings are a prerequisite for forgiveness... We're oftentimes just using that as an excuse to nurture our hurt. I'm I'm not ready to forgive just quite yet. I'll I'll let you know when I'm I'm ready. Oftentimes we use that as, as an excuse to nurture our hurt. Forgiveness isn't about feelings. It's all about dealing with facts biblically. Write that down. That was a good one. Forgiveness isn't about feelings, it's about dealing with facts biblically. Secondly, forgiveness isn't forgetting, okay? Forgetting is passive. It counts on the hurt fading from our memory simply because hours or days or months or years have passed. But forgiveness, on the other hand, is active. Forgiveness pursues the problem with a conscious choice and a deliberate action. A conscious choice to forgive and a deliberate action letting our feelings catch up with our choice. Consider this on the topic of forgetting here. When God says that he remembers your sin no more, it's Isaiah 43, 25, by the way. I am the Lord, that is my name. I, for, I remember your sins no more. He isn't saying that he literally can't remember your sins. That's impossible. He's omniscient. What he's saying in Isaiah 43 is I'm refusing to mull over and to hold your sin against you. That's what God means when he says, I remember your sin no more. Is that he chooses, it's a conscious choice, not to mull over them, not to hold them over our heads. Forgiveness isn't forgetting. Okay? And then lastly, number three, forgiveness isn't faking. It's not a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not faking. Forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that you were never hurt by someone. You see, if if forgiveness is to be genuine, it must by definition acknowledge the sin that created it or that necessitated it. If forgiveness is to be genuine, it must by definition acknowledge the wound that sin created. To pretend that sin doesn't hurt, that's not spiritual. 
Okay? It's not super spiritual to walk around like, like we uh, are never hurt by anything. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Life in the pit of hell. Why are there so many New Testament verses on the power of words? They set a whole forest ablaze. Like a small rudder on a ship, they turn the entire vessel. With the same tongue, we bless our Lord and curse his creations. Faking it, faking or pretending that I haven't been hurt by someone else's sin. That's not spiritual. At times, we pretend we no longer hold on to people's sins against us, but our actions oftentimes communicate that we want to stay far away from those people that have hurt us. We fake forgiveness and peace on the outside, all the while continuing to burn on the inside. Let me give you an illustration here. A good friend of mine one time was, was illustrating forgiveness, and he talked about it this way. He said, it, you know, each, each day as, is as if your life is, is being written down in a journal, so to speak, uh, you know, with, with an ink pen and, and a piece of paper there, and, and your life and the circumstances and the events and the people are being written down. Now, here's not what I'm saying. This is just an illustration. I'm not saying that God is writing your life on the fly, okay? All of your days were numbered before there were yet one of them. Just think for the sake of illustration here. Each day as if your life is being written down in a journal and all of a sudden someone else's dreams, wants, and desires come colliding into yours and there's conflict and hurt. Sin has entered my relationship and it has hurt me. Think about that pen dumping all of its ink contents on the page. Okay? And then we continue to write and we turn the page the next day and, and we continue to write the events and the circumstances and the people and the relationships. Forgiveness, let me illustrate it for you here. If you were to close the book or close the journal, okay, forgiveness isn't forgetting about the offense because we can't do that. What forgiveness is, is refusing to turn back to the page and rehearse it. Make sense? Forgiveness doesn't mean that I'm forgetting about the hurt. It means that I'm refusing to mull over it and to rehearse it and to fume and to boil and to continue to react instead of respond, to withhold forgiveness, to nurture bitterness. So forgiveness isn't a feeling, it's not forgetting, and it's not faking. Okay? Well, what is it then? What does real forgiveness look like? Well, first of all, it's a declaration. It's a declaration. As a matter of fact, the word there, in the original language, in Koine Greek, for forgive, in Matthew 6, verse 12, it means to send away, or to dismiss, or to let go, or to release. And so when I, when I forgive you for your sin, I am making a conscious, willful declaration to send away the debt to dismiss the debt, to let the debt go, or to release the debt that sin has incurred. It's a declaration, first of all. It's a promise, second of all. It's a promise not to rehearse another's sin that was against us, to go back and look at the page with spilt ink on it again. It's giving up your right for revenge or repayment and instead returning good for evil. It's giving up. It's relinquishing your right for revenge or repayment and instead returning good for evil. And then I would tell you, lastly, it's repeating the process as many times as necessary. Okay? There, there is the process 
of forgiveness and the event of forgiveness. Here's what I mean by that. When I forgive someone who has sinned against me, I'm making a declaration to not hold their sin against them. I'm absorbing the blow and I'm refusing to return fire. I'm refusing to hurt you for hurting me. Okay, That's the declaration. And I'm returning good even for, for evil there. But I'm also giving up my right to repay you. Now, that's, that's the instance of forgiveness. But every time that thought reoccurs in my mind, and Satan would love to use uh, thoughts of past hurts, that they'll come up at the most inopportune times, as you're driving to work, as you're getting ready in the morning, as you're sitting down at the table for dinner, as you're laying in bed awake at night, and your mind is a-going, Satan would love to remind you of the past hurt that so-and-so committed against you, the past sin that so-and-so committed against you. And in those moments, I have to forgive again. Not that I'm going to that person, but in my own heart, I'm refusing to mull over it. A good way to fight that is scripture memory. Okay? What, what scripture do you have memorized about forgiveness even? What do you have in your arsenal that you can use in those moments so that your mind isn't isn't tempted to mull over someone's sin against you. It's a declaration to promise not to rehearse, and it's giving up your right for revenge or repayment. Now, let me say a few things here uh, about taking payments versus making payments. Okay, You can either take payments on someone's sin debt towards you, or you can make payments towards someone's sin debt towards you. See, when someone sins against you, you stand at a critical decision-making fork in the road. And as you come to that fork, you notice a sign that indicates the name of the two roads ahead. The road to the left is called taking payments. The road to the right is called making payments. This is the choice that you're faced with every time you're sinned against. You can either take payments on your offender's debt, or you can make payments on your offender's debt. Now, you ask, what, is, what does that mean? Glad you asked. Let me tell you. We make payments. I'm sorry, we take payments on someone's sin debt toward us in a myriad of ways. Could look like this. We withhold forgiveness. We smolder over the wrong that was done to us. We put up all kinds of relational walls and barriers, and we keep those who hurt us at a distance. Maybe we slander or gossip about the person who sinned against us. Maybe we even seek to make our offender feel something of the pain that they inflicted upon us. Those are all good ways, and there are a myriad of other ways that we can take payments on a debt of sin against us. You see, because sin is sadistic, taking payments on a sin debt may feel good in the moment, but it demands a really, really high price from you and from me. You know, it's been said, unforgiveness is the poison that we drink hoping another will die. Unforgiveness is the poison we drink hoping that another will die. You see the sin in that? When we refuse to send away, to dismiss, to let go, or to release someone of the sin they've committed against us, we become the prisoner. We drink the poison. You know, one of the ways that monkeys are caught in their 
countries is to place a treat of some sort in a small glass jar that's tethered to a tree. You see, the monkey with a loose hand can, can reach his hand into the jar, but as he grasps the treat and balls his fist, he can't remove his hand from the jar. You see, when we're insistent on taking payments from our offender and we refuse to, quote, let go or to release the offense, the only person who's a prisoner is you and me. We're like the monkey there that could go absolutely free if he would just drop the treat and pull his hand out loosely just like he inserted it loosely. But it's when we hold on to hurts, it's when we hold on to offenses that we ourselves become prisoner. And so the better road then, the right road, is that of making payments. Now, we can make payments in a myriad of ways here. Okay? We make payments on the sin debt of another by, by freeing them from the penalties they might rightly deserve. In other words, you absorb the blow of the sin and you refuse, you refuse again a counterattack. Making payments uh, means that you have to deal with the effects of another person's sin and sometimes even for a long time. Are you willing to continue to make those payments even if you have to deal with the effects of someone else's sin committed against you for a long period of time? It means that you refuse to rehearse the wrong over and over and over again until you're in your mind and until the ember of anger is again fanned into full flame. It means speaking kindly and graciously even when you're tempted to be short or sharp to that individual. I mean, Jesus illustrated making payments in Matthew chapter 18 when Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how many, how many times can my brother sin against me and I, yet I still forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus illustrates making payments. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times seven. You see, Jesus wasn't trying to give Peter a lesson in mathematics here. Jesus wasn't saying, Peter, get out your calculator 77 times 7 is 490. That means 491st time someone sins against you, you're free to go, buddy. Toss the towel in. You can, you can react however you want. You can enact your own vengeance. You can be your own judge and jury and executioner. Now, that's not what Jesus was saying. Instead, Jesus was illustrating the principle of making payments by continued forgiveness. You see, there's always a high cost involved in forgiveness. You might be at a place in a particular relationship where you feel tapped out, where, where you feel like making payments on another person's sin debt towards you has left you with, with, with a zero balance, with nothing left to give. What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those moments where you feel like ma- having made continual payments towards another person's sin committed against you has left you with a zero balance? in your forgiveness account. Well, while you may feel like, and there's that feelings again, feeling is so subjective, friends. Don't let feelings sit in the driver's seat of your life. You'll go careening off many a hills. Let truth sit in the driver's seat of your life. While you may feel like your forgiveness account is empty, Jesus has a grace account which can never be outspent. Okay? While you may feel like your forgiveness Uh, account or your forgiveness tank is empty, Jesus has a grace account that can never be outspent. He went to the cross and, and what he did there was he paid the ultimate debt of your sin, if you know him savingly. You see, it's when we forget the magnitude of the forgiveness that has been granted towards us that we find it hard to forgive the insignificant in comparison 
offenses that others commit against me. It's when we take our eyes off of Jesus and our eyes become inordinately attached to our wants, dreams, and desires. Friends, not only did Jesus pay your and my sin debt in full at the cross, but he established a limitless account of grace and he made you the owner of the account. But we must access the account and draw upon it each day. When we do, we'll find that 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 account attains not only enough grace to pay the debt of our own sins, but also enough to make the payments for the forgiveness of anyone who wrongs you, no matter the size of the offense. You can't out-sin God's grace. Another person can't out-sin God's grace towards you. God's grace account that has been given to you or entrusted to you is large enough to cover not only your own sin, but also the sin of others committed against you. But you have to use it, friends. Let me give you some of the consequences, real briefly here, of withholding forgiveness. Here are some consequences of withholding forgiveness. First of all, if you withhold forgiveness, you're revealing that you really don't understand the magnitude of your own sin. I have lots of commentary here. You can look at my notes later if you would be so inclined. But if you withhold forgiveness, you're revealing that you don't understand the magnitude of your own sin. Secondly, if you withhold forgiveness, you're treating others as if they're your enemies. You're treating others as if they are your enemies. John wrote, If anyone says, I love God, but yet hates his brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has seen, or has not seen, rather. If you can't forgive, then you really don't love, so unforgiveness at its core is really a display of hatred. Unforgiveness at its core is really a display of hatred. Third, if you withhold forgiveness, you prevent the worship that God is infinitely worthy of. If you withhold forgiveness, you prevent the worship that God is so infinitely worthy worthy of. That's why we're told, if you are offering your your offering at the altar and there you realize that your brother has something against you, stop. Leave it there and go be reconciled with your brother and then come back and offer your gift of worship. Next, if you withhold forgiveness, you're hindering the fruitfulness that abiding in Christ bears. Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. You see, you can't simultaneously abide in Christ and harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. Okay, You can't abide in Christ, which produces fruitfulness, and at the same time harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. Next, if you withhold forgiveness, you're bringing a charge against God's sovereignty. You're bringing a charge against God's sovereignty. God ordains all things. He's not the author of sin, but he is sovereign over the thoughts, the motives, the actions, the deeds of every man. This means that a refusal to forgive someone when they sin against you is is to hold not only that person in contempt, but is to hold the sovereignty of God in contempt. When you withhold forgiveness, you're you're bringing a charge against God's sovereignty. And then lastly here, If you withhold forgiveness, you are setting yourself up as the highest authority in the universe. 
If we withhold forgiveness, we're setting ourselves up as the highest authority in the universe. Here's what I mean by that. Jeremiah 33, 8, God said of himself, I will cleanse them from all their guilt, of all their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of all their sin and rebellion against me. So, therefore, to withhold forgiveness is to set yourself up as an autonomous authority higher than God because you're saying, I will not. It's the epitome of pride, friends. It's the epitome of pride. Number three, be super brief here. When the radical grace of forgiveness is practiced, our relationships will reflect the gospel as they were intended to. God has intended, God has designed that our relationships reflect something of the nature of the gospel. That is redemption, that is forgiveness, that is mercy, and that is grace. And friends, you need to know that we have a whole wide watching world that is looking at how we conduct our lives as believers and as professed believers. And they're wanting to see, is there continuity or discontinuity between what they say and what they do? Friends, how are we doing there? When we refuse to offer forgiveness, when we harbor bitterness and nurture grudges, when our relationships are not marked by mercy and grace and kindness, then what we are, the picture we are sending to the world is that of an anti-gospel. An anti-gospel. Friends, how, how are we doing there? Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, he said, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay? You having trouble forgiving somebody? Remember that cross, friends. Remember all the grace and all the mercy, all the compassion, all the pity on your sin that God has had towards you and go and extend that to others. And in doing so, reflect the glorious nature of the gospel.